evil minds that plot destruction. Sorcerer of death's construction. In the fields of bodies burning. As the war machine keeps turning. Death and hatred to mankind. Poisoning their brainwashed minds. Welcome to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia on the National Community Radio Satellite. Listen. The Anarchist Woolless Week, Australia's sacred cow slaughterhouse. Listen to analysis of local, national, international events. Listen to analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Welcome to the Anarchist World this week. This program is pre-recorded. There will be no scintillating and boring analysis of local national events. This is a, this program I'll be talking about the Eureka Rebellion. In case you've been Eureka'd out, don't despair. We're going to take a new look at this pivotal moment in Australian history. Now, a lot of people say the Eureka Rebellion is contested history. It's not contested history. People want to use the symbols for their own uh, corporate or political purposes. For example, you've got corporations in the city of Ballarat which use the Eureka symbols to promote their institutions and to create profits without giving back or acknowledging the central themes of the Eureka Rebellion. Then you've got people politically who somehow think that the uh, Southern Cross is some type of uh, flag that is used uh, by the Australians to denote a uh, racist orientation. Then you've got other people, uh, mainly in the Liberal National Party, who think that the Eureka Rebellion was some type of small business revolt. And the list goes on and on. Now, the Eureka Rebellion has always been contested history. If you go to the old Ballarat Cemetery in uh, Ballarat, and you go to the Diggers Monument and you read the inscriptions on the mass grave and then you go to the Soldiers Monument and you read the inscription on the Soldiers Monument, you can see that the day after the rebellion was put down in the Sea of Blood that it became contested history. And 163 years later, it continues to be contested history because of the nature of the rebellion, because what we saw was a rebellion. Now, despite millions, millions of words, tens of millions of words that have been written about this pivotal event in Australian history, so few words have been written about the central themes of the Eureka Rebellion. Direct democracy, direct action, solidarity and internationalism. Now, for the last 20 years, possibly 30 years, I've been studying the Eureka Rebellion, not the who did this and who did that to whom or what type of musket balls were used, you know, but looking at the essence of the rebellion and what it meant to the people there and what it means to us 163 years later. Because a lot of people don't seem to understand that much of the political debate that's going on today in our community much of the political struggle 
can be directly related to the struggles which led to the Eureka Rebellion and the Eureka Massacre. I mean, the 163rd anniversary of the Eureka Revolt provides an excellent opportunity to reassess the significance of what occurred in Ballarat in 1854. As I said before, it's both ironic and depressing that in 2017, the events that have helped to shape the consciousness of both a people and a nation are still dismissed by many as a revolt about mining licences. In this program, today's program, I'll attempt to reclaim that forgotten, discarded, radical history by examining what I think are the central themes of the Eureka Rebellion. And those central themes, direct action, direct democracy, solidarity and internationalism, are themes that are that are echo in the Eureka Oath. We swear by the Southern Cross to stand truly by each other and fight to defend our rights and liberties. This oath was taken by about 500 poorly armed miners late Wednesday afternoon on the 29th of November 1854 at Bakery Hill. At the foot of the very same flagstaff that saw the Southern Cross first raised that morning at a monster meeting of over 12,000 miners and their supporters. It's important for us to look at these central themes because very few people look at the radical nature of the Eureka Rebellion and the ongoing impact that rebellion had and continues to have on Australian society. And going back to the Eureka Oath, I'd just like to go through the Eureka Oath word by word, because I think, I know, not think, I know, that this is one of the most significant sentences uttered in human history, and I can see you falling over laughing. So let's go through it. We. It doesn't say white Anglo-Saxon males. It says we. The people on the goldfields at Ballarat at that particular point in time. We. We swear by the Southern Cross. Now, the Southern Cross isn't a religious uh, analogy, a Christian analogy, as many people think. Many of the people who came to the Eureka uh, gold diggings in Ballarat in 1854 were survivors of the 1848 wave of revolutions which swept across Europe were Chartists, political refugees, asylum seekers, and they'd come to this country to start a new life. And you've got to remember that in 1854, Ballarat was a tent city. It was a tent city. And when people were, you know, trying to get to sleep at night after a hard day's work or a hard night's drinking, they didn't have iPads or telephones or televisions. They told stories. And they looked up to the night skies. And obviously in those days the night skies aren't as clouded as they are today. And in that night sky they would see the Southern Cross. And the Southern Cross would remind them that they had come to a new land. Because you can only see the Southern Cross in the Southern Hemisphere. They had come to a new land to pursue their aims, their ambitions, their lives. So we swear by the Southern Cross 
to stand truly by each other. Many of the people involved in the Eureka Rebellion were hardened political activists, hardened radical activists, who'd been blooded during the Chartist movement in Great Britain and blooded during the 1848 revolutionary period that swept Europe. They knew what it was to struggle. They knew that the only way that working people, people not in authority, people who were not born on the right side of the blanket, could get anywhere in life was by standing by each other. In other words, solidarity was a central theme of the Eureka Rebellion. And fight to defend. That's right, and fight. They understood that nothing would be given to them. They understood the history of the world is a history of change. It's a history of people taking what is theirs and that they would need it to fight to defend our rights and liberties. Now, these were extraordinary people. While we are, we've become basically a society of carping, cringing consumers, these people believed in 1854, 163 years ago, they were born with inalienable rights and liberties that nobody could take away. It didn't matter what laws were passed. They continued to enjoy these inalienable rights and liberties they were born with. So while I'm, you know, making a, this program today, and while you're listening, just keep that eureka over in the back of your head. We swear by the Southern Cross to stand truly by each other and fight to defend our rights and liberties. Now, a lot of people think that the Eureka Rebellion was a struggle about representative democracy, although most of the demands which were made in that charter which was set up by the Ballarat Reform League, which was basically the, the same document which was used by the British Chartists to try to promote parliamentary reform through peaceful means. The people involved in the Ballarat Rebellion used direct democracy as the primary feature of their organisation. It's only natural that people who are denied participation in the, in the decision-making processes of, of the societies they live in develop their own processes. It's only natural if you deny people the process. People develop their own processes. The miners at Ballarat, confronted by a government that taxed them but denied them the right to participate in the decision-making process, soon developed their own organisations. I mean, the influx of humanity that tried to eke out their fortunes from the mining shafts at Ballarat came from all corners of the world. Many had escaped difficult political circumstances. Most had flocked to Ballarat to make their fortunes. Faced with a ruthless government and a corrupt bureaucracy, they soon formed their own organisations. Men and women on the Ballarat goldfields and across Victoria, on the goldfields across Victoria, faced a common enemy. Old hatreds based on political divisions, class divisions, race and religion were put aside in the struggle against a more immediate and dangerous foe. 
men and women who had participated in the 1848 European Revolutionary Movement, Irish nationalists, Chartists and the apolitical, coalesced into a new organisation that represented the interests of both miners and small businesses, the Ballarat Reform League. The Ballarat Reform League was formed on the 11th of November 1854. It became the driving force behind the Eureka Rebellion. The League was formed, it was born and formed, as a result of ordinary people taking matters into their own hands and directly making decisions about what was important to them. They did this through direct democratic means, adopting principles and objectives that recognise the people are the only legitimate source of political authority, the only legitimate source of political power. The people are the only legitimate source. The meeting on the 11th of November 1854 adopted a number of principles and objectives that clearly challenged the power of the state. That it is an inalienable right of every citizen to have a voice in making the laws he is called on to obey. That taxation without representation is tyranny. That being as the people have been hitherto unrepresentative in the Legislative Council of the Colony of Victoria, they have been tyrannised over and it becomes their duty as well as interest to resist if necessary to remove the irresponsible power which so tyrannises over them. That this colony has hitherto been governed by paid officials upon the false assumption that law is greater than justice. Because so fuf, sooth, it was made by them and their hands and admirably suits their selfish ends and narrow-minded views. It is the object of the Ballarat Reform League to place power in the hands of responsible representatives of the people to frame wholesome laws and carry on an honest government. That it is not the wish of the League to affect an immediate separation of this colony from the parent country, if equal laws and equal rights are dealt out to the whole free community. But that if Queen Victoria continues to act upon indirectly dictating obnoxious laws for the colony under the assumed authority of the royal prerogative, the Ballarat Reform League will endeavour to supersede such royal prerogative as the people are the only legitimate source of political power. This was a call to arms, a rallying call to people to take matters into their own hands. This is what the Ballarat Reform League was about. Although there are protest movements across the colony of Victoria, the most politicised protest was at Ballarat. And why did these protests occur? It was very simple. When the squatters first squatted Victoria in 1836, and exterminated the local population over a 10 to 15 year period. They controlled the land. 720 squatters had leasehold titles on almost every inch of soil and water in the colony of Victoria. 720. They were represented in the Legislative Council 
and when gold was discovered, they had a dilemma. For a decade, they had been using cheap labour. Ticket-of-leave convicts from New South Wales and Tasmania. Poor immigrants. Cheap labour in order to run their sheep runs and make extraordinary fortunes. Because at this particular point in time, squatters weren't, you know, poor people trying to keep a roof over their head. The squatters were people who were bankrolled by the aristocracy and business elements in England. Free land, free water, you bring your sheep on, cheap labour, almost slave labour and hey bingo. So when the goal was discovered, the squatters had a dilemma. And the Legislative Council, the Victorian Legislative Council had a dilemma. And that dilemma was how to keep the boys and girls down on the farm to make a buck for their employer. And they did this by introducing a mining licence. So the mining licence, the introduction of a mining licence, was an attempt to keep labour on the farm, an attempt for them to keep their cheap labour, to stop them running off to the gold fields, because by this time labour was an indigent. But it was a failed attempt, because people were willing to take the risk of making nothing and go on the gold fields and work in this poorly paid, miserable jobs. And they flocked to the gold fields in their tens of thousands. Tens of thousands flocked to the gold fields. So when they arrived at the gold fields, there was a whole bureaucracy and police apparatus which had been formulated and informed in order to collect collect the miners' tax. And that meant that if you wanted to mine an area about, you know, it was about three metres by three metres, you had to pay a tax of up to five pounds a month, which is an extraordinary sum for 1854, for the right to put your pick in the soil. And if you didn't have a licence with you at all time, you would be fined five pounds. And the beauty was the local police, who were also poorly paid, were giving a percentage of that fine if they're able to extract that fine from you. So this is the background. You could have had a tax on the gold which was extracted from the earth, but no, the Legislative Council decided to have a tax on every single miner in order to keep their uh, workers on the farm. Between the formation of the Ballarat Reform League at Bakery Hill on the 11th of November 1854 and the destruction of the movement in a sea of blood on the 3rd of December 1854, the mass meeting played a central and pivotal role in the Eureka movement. All power evolved from mass meetings. The legitimacy of the movement's leaders and its aims and objectives were related to the direct participation of diggers, storekeepers and inhabitants in mass meetings. Delegates with limited mandates were appointed or elected to carry out the wishes of those present at the mass meetings. Monster meetings were a feature of life in Ballarat. On the 1st November 1854... Over 15,000 inhabitants gathered at Bakery Hill to protest the arrest of Andrew McIntyre, Thomas Fletcher and Henry Yorkie for complicity in the burning of Bentley's Hotel. It was both natural 
and appropriate, the Ballarat Reform League was created through structures the miners were familiar with. Mass meetings allowed the people affected by a decision to make that decision. The next monster meeting occurred on Wednesday the 29th of November. Under the newly hosted Southern Cross flag, over 12,000 people gathered to listen to reports from the delegates they had appointed to raise their grievances directly with Governor, Governor Hotham. Unhappy with their delegates' lack of success with the Governor and the violent encounter the previous day with the 12th Regiment, participants in the mass meetings were ready to escalate their struggle. Just remember that. Mass meetings, delegates, limited, limited tenure. The League's division between a moral and a physical force component gave people a stark choice. The the diggers keen to resist the increasing military presence on the goldfields chose the physical path. Humphrey, the president they had elected on the 11th of November, had lost what moral authority he had. The events that occurred on the Ballarat gravel pits the following day when the authorities continued their licence hunts with the aid of the military forces that had been sent to Ballarat was the last straw. The diggers who had camped at the Eureka diggings formed armed military divisions to protect and defend arrested diggers and fight to defend their inalienable rights and liberties they believed they were born with. Ironically, Few participants in the Eureka Rebellion, few participants in the mass meetings, realise what they had created was an embryonic society based on direct democratic principles. Their short and long-term political aims were fashioned around the need to participate in a parliamentary process they had been denied access to. A process that gave credence to the idea that the democratic process is limited to people casting a ballot every few years to elect representatives to make decisions on their behalf. A few entertained a more radical vision of democracy. Understanding the significance of what was happening, Henry Seacombe, the editor of the Ballarat Times, the only man who was jailed as a result of the uh, Eureka Rebellion for uh, um, sedition, wrote, when the Ballarat Reform League was formed, the League was not more or less than the germ of Australian independence and that it had the potential to become an Australian Congress. Australian Congress, Australian independence, direct democracy, pivotal feature of the Eureka Rebellion, mass meetings, decisions made, delegates appointed, Mandates given to delegates. Delegates carry out their mandates. They come back and report to the mass meetings. Direct democracy in action. So a central feature, as I said before, of the Ballarat Rebellion, the Eureka Rebellion, was direct democracy. How many people talk about this central feature? Few, if any. Direct action. The next central feature of the Eureka Rebellion. Direct action in its simplest terms, means that people believe they are able to manage their affairs better than those who are doing it for them. Very simple. 
You take direct action to change things radically at a fixed point in time. Many of the Eureka miners had lost all faith in both the bureaucracy and the colonial authorities. Faced with daily attacks from a bureaucracy that was actively pursuing state policies that threatened both the miners' interests and their safety, the scene was set for a struggle that challenged the colonial authorities' power to use force to impose the state's will on the Ballarat diggings. The ability of the Ballarat miners to challenge the state was based on the need of citizens of a frontier society who were actively pursuing a policy of dispossessing the local indigenous population through the use of force to have access to firearms. In 1854 Victoria, the state's traditional monopoly on the use of force was undermined by the need of people living in a frontier society to have ready access to firearms. The diggers' ability to form their own organisations, the need for them to sort out their differences outside of a corrupt judicial system and their ability to formulate demands among themselves through direct democratic processes created a climate where the creation of a dual power situation became a distinct possibility. The only thing that stood between the Eureka miners controlling their own affairs was the military might of the British Empire. Faced with the possibility of a rebellion spreading to other Victorian goldfields and possibly even Melbourne itself, Governor Hotham, a naval disciplinarian, was appointed governor to quickly lance the social carbuncle growing on the goldfields. I mean, the Victorian authorities knew it was happening. The British authorities knew it was happening. They knew that this was uh, an area where there could be a revolt. I mean, the British Empire was faced with revolts which it monotonously put down in the most brutal fashion. A direct confrontation between the much-hated and poorly armed Joes, nicknamed for the police, they were nicknamed after you know, the first administrator, who were using 1840 constable carbines and triangular socket bayonets would have resulted in a quick rout of the foot and mounted police. A confrontation with the British Army was another matter. As the challenge to the colonial authorities' power increased, Governor Hotham began to flood the area with well-armed and disciplined British troops. Both the 40th and 12th Regiment were armed with the more modern 1842 percussion musket, which could fire two rounds a minute. The 40th Regiment mounted military force carried light and cavalry swords, 1844 carbines and single-shot percussion pistols. So the authorities were quite well armed. The police were armed, the military were armed. On the 29th of November, around 500 poorly armed miners gathered at Bakery Hill, then marched to Eureka and set up the stockade. They spent the next few days procuring arms, electing their own officers and setting up a hastily erected enclosure. Saturday the 2nd of December was spent drilling and procuring horses and arms. About 1,500 armed men were in the enclosure that evening. By the time the 12th and 40th Regiment 
and foot and mounted police attacked the stockade the next morning, the number of miners in the stockade had dwindled to around 120. Faced with a determined onslaught by well-armed troops, the miners soon gave way to the overwhelming firepower directed at them. Simple. Major General Sir Robert Nicholl arrived at Ballarat two days after the battle with the rest of the 12th and 40th regiments, as well as a a naval contingent that had two six-pounder field pieces and two 12-pound howitzers. The comprehensive, and it was comprehensive, the comprehensive military victory on the Ballarat goldfields did not spell the defeat or end of direct action. Paradoxically, the concentration of so much military power in Ballarat made Hotham's administration extremely vulnerable. 37 Marines from the recently arrived HMS Phantom and the HMS Electra were posted to guard the Treasury buildings in Spring Street, Melbourne. 1,500 special constables were sworn in to maintain order in Melbourne. Protest meetings that attracted thousands of people held in Melbourne and on the goldfields in the days following the Eureka slaughter. The Ballarat miners' decision to directly challenge state power by challenging the state's monopoly on the use of force had paid dividends. Faced with a restless population that was willing to directly confront the state to assert its authority, the state faced with the problem of not having the military muscle to assert its authority and faced with a major loss of credibility, the claiming authorities were forced by the Ballarat miners' use of direct action to find a political solution to a problem to which there was no military solution. Because Ballarat was about access to land. Ballarat was about decision-making processes. That's what the Eureka Rebellion was, was about. And the authorities understood The revolt was not limited to Ballarat. And they understood, they didn't have the muscles, the power, the military might to contain any revolutionary outbreaks on the Victorian goldfields. And they acquiesced. And within 12 months of the Eureka Rebellion, the leaders of the rebellion, both Humphrey and Laylor, were both members of parliament. Raphael Caboni was a member of the the courts, Twelve months later, people who were, were going to be hung, drawn and executed until they were acquitted in 1855, in February 1855, you know, were in Parliament. In Parliament, making decisions. Could you imagine the same thing happening in Australia in 2017? Internationalism. Now, one of the most commonly misunderstood elements of the Eureka Rebellion is its internationalism. And that's why we, can, we see elements in society using the flag, the Southern Cross, to promote a racist agenda. The Eureka flag was never a racist flag. It was an inclusive flag. It's acknowledged by most commentators and historians the diggers who flocked to the goldfields came from all corners of the world. What is forgotten is, although the miners were predominantly of European origin, many came from other parts of the British Empire and the rest of the world. Deeply held views about race and religion were watered down in the face of the common enemy, the British Empire. 
irrespective of where they came from, their race or religion, all the miners felt the brunt of the colonial authorities' attempts to extract the maximum amount of cash from them. Their common experiences at the hands of the authorities created a culture where race and religion were not important issues. They were pushed aside. What was the important issue was the oppression everybody faced on the goldfields. The only people excluded from the process were the remnants of the original indigenous population. Caboni was one of the few miners who, in his pantomime, Gilburnia, written while he was awaiting trial in Melbourne for high treason in early 1855, promoted the idea that the original inhabitants were as much, if not more, so victims of the British colonial authorities than the miners were. So there were miners who understood that the dispossession of the indigenous population, the dispossession of Aboriginal people from their lands they had traditionally held for generations, was a political act. It was an act of terrorism. Simple. The international Eureka movement is highlighted, as I said before, in the Eureka Oath. We swear by the Southern Cross to stand truly by each other and fight to defend our rights and liberties. In a period when God, Queen and Country were the dominant ideological themes of the period, the oath began with the word we. Everybody in the goldfields, irrespective of where they came from, their race or nationality, were welcomed into the movement. This was a movement against the excesses of the British Empire. It was a movement of the oppressed to throw off their yoke. Some of the most prominent participants in the movement did not use English as their first language. Raffaello Caboni, the unofficial historian for the movement, who on the first anniversary of the Eureka Rebellion was giving away his book about the rebellion at the site of the rebellion, and Frederick Verne, the German who was a rival of Peter Laylor for the leadership of the movement, did not use English as their first language. Three of the 13 members of the Council of War for the Defence of the Miners Edward Fonan from Eberfield, Prussia, Raphael Caboni from Eberna, Italy, and Frederick von from Germany came from non-English-speaking parts of the world. John Manning, Timothy Hayes, Patrick Curtin and Peter Layla were from Ireland. Thomas Kennedy was from Scotland and James McGill II in command was from the United States. This was a truly internationalist movement. Men from non-union-speaking, non-English-speaking backgrounds as well as non-British-English-speaking also appeared among the list of those who were killed and wounded at Eureka and who were tried for high treason for their participation in the battle in 1854. Of the 13 men tried for high treason in uh, 1855, John Joseph was a black American born in New York, Raphael Caboni was an Italian from Ubuno, Jacob Sorison was a Jew, Jan Venick hailed from Holland, James McPhee Campbell was a black man from Kingston, Jamaica. Michael Tui, Timothy Hayes, John Plian came from Ireland, while Thomas, Thomas Duggan, the only native born among the 13, was born in Sydney. Irish, Prussians, as well as the Canadian, Lieutenant Ross, made up the list of those killed while fighting at the Eureka Stockade. Three of the 
Two Italians featuring among the names of those massacred after the battle, whose names do not appear in any monuments. The international nature of the Eureka movement is one of its most important elements. The miners faced with a common enemy, the hated colonial authorities, joined together in a movement that included people from non-English speaking parts of the world as well as different races and religions. The hatreds that would be expected would be expected to normally divide people on the gold fields were put aside in the common struggle to destroy a system that made all their lives a misery. That's what it's about, a common struggle, a common struggle for decency, a common struggle for freedom, a common struggle for democracy. It didn't matter what your religious beliefs were, where you came from, the colour of your skin, as long as you were part of that common struggle, as long as you worked with other people, you were part of that movement. You were accepted into that movement. You know? Solidarity. We've spoken about direct democracy. We've spoken about direct action. We've spoken about internationalism. And last but not least, we'll speak about solidarity. Another central theme of the Eureka story. Solidarity is one of the central themes of the Eureka Rebellion. Individual miners could never have hoped to achieve what was achieved at Eureka. Solidarity between all the major players on the goldfields, irrespective of their race, nationality, religion, or whether they made their livelihoods from digging on the ground or providing goods and services to the miners, was an important ingredient in the mix that allowed them to resist the colonial authorities' plans to restrict and remove what few rights and liberties people living on the goldfields believed they were born with. The participants in the Eureka Rebellion understood the importance of solidarity. The central role solidarity played in the movement is both outlined is outlined in the Eureka Oath. We swear by the Southern Cross to stand truly by each other and fight to defend our rights and liberties. And in the actions the participants in the rebellion took to protect each other from the colonial authorities' actions. Digger licence hunts by the Joes, the police, were met with stones and, on occasions, gunshot. Every time diggers were arrested, taken away, fined and imprisoned, the anger on the goldfields increased. Increased, not decreased. The local newspapers, especially Henry Seekins Ballarat Times, threw their support behind the diggers. The Ballarat Times printing presses were used to produce many of the flyers that were posted up around Ballarat advertising the monster meetings that were held at Bakery Hill. The diggers were especially upset when ten of them number were singled out and arrested for burning down Bentley's Hotel. Three were eventually charged and imprisoned for their role in the riot which led to the burning down of the hotel. Governor Hawthorne, well aware of the discontent was not just limited to the discontent was not just limited to Ballarat and that he faced a possible insurrection on the goldfields, did his best to ensure the better armed Americans did not join the revolt. The Americans' favourable treatment before the courts, before the revolt, and the lack of charges laid against those Americans like James McGill 
the deputy commander of the revolt, reinforced people's opinions that a deal had been done between the American consul and Hotham, which resulted in only a few of the better-armed Americans becoming involved in the Eureka Rebellion. On the eve of the Eureka Rebellion, the better-armed Americans were sent on wild goose chases looking for phantom armies, which never arrived. Has injustice piled on injustice? Has inquiry after inquiry didn't come up with any real answers? Has the licence hunts intensified and the military took on an active part in the hunts? And as the level of official corruption increased on the goldfields, the miners were forced to rely on themselves. Solidarity became more and more important. Faced with a network of government spies and government attempts to use the legal system and the military to cut put down to put down the unrest on the goldfields, many of the people working the claims and providing people and services to those on the Ballarat goldfields were forced to form their own organisations, arm themselves against the state. The situation the situation at Ballarat progressed to armed rebellion because those living at Ballarat were concerned about their neighbours' safety as well as their own. Their shared oppression and the inability of unwillingness of the colonial authorities to resolve their concerns, the daily injustices meted out to individuals within their communities by a hostile and indifferent administration, provided the spark that convinced the miners the only way the colonial authorities would take notice of them and their grievances was by burning the di- burning by burying their differences and working together as a single united movement that believed an injury to all was an injury to one. So why are we reclaiming the radical spirit of the Eureka Rebellion? Why do we reclaim it 163 years later? Why am I wasting your time today talking about an event that occurred 163 years ago? Because the Eureka Rebellion didn't finish in 1854. It began in 1854. The Eureka Rebellion is a classical example of uh, a lost battle and a won war. Because although the miners lost the battle at Eureka on the 3rd of December, they won the war. Not just in terms of parliamentary representation, but they won the war in terms of people beginning to understand that real power lay in their hands, not some centralised authority in New South Wales or uh, Melbourne, that real power lay in their hands. And if there's one lesson to be learnt from the Eureka Rebellion is that direct action pays dividends. Direct action pays dividends acquiescence does not pay dividends. The other lesson is that solidarity is critical. Critical. And as you know, I speak about public interest before corporate interests on this program, and I've been speaking about it for two years now, almost two and a half years. And as you know, our membership rate has kind of plateaued over the last six months or so, and we're looking for another 200 members who are preferably on the electoral roll, although you don't have to be on the electoral roll to be a member. And to a large degree, public interest before corporate interest is is all about what Eureka was about. It was about putting the interests of the many before the interests of the few. 
And what we've seen during the past 40 years, during the deregulation, globalisation, corporatisation and privatisation revolution, what we have seen is that people are once again been excluded from the decision-making processes, as they were in 1854. And that continual desire to exclude ordinary people from the decision-making processes was the catalyst which led to the Rika Rebellion and which led to the reforms which occurred as a result of the Eureka Rebellion. It's quite unlikely any reforms would have occurred without the Eureka Rebellion. The reverberations were nationwide. People saw that you could modify the response of the state. They saw that through direct action you could change your life, the life of your children, and change the course of history for countless generations. They began to understand that. And this is the essence. Because on this program we like to use the word hope. Hope. The love child of desire and expectation. The desire for for change and the expectation that change will occur. And today, we seem to have forgotten that as human beings, we are born with inalienable rights and liberties that no government can legislate away and no corporation can take, take away from us. And it's that spirit of resistance, it's that spirit of radical activism is what we honour and celebrate because that is the catalyst. That is what is required, that is the spark that is required to bring about fundamental change, to change our society, to devolve power and share the commonwealth. That is that spark. And Eureka is an excellent example of how that spark was lit and how radical change occurred almost overnight. Eureka is an example of how important direct democracy is of how important direct action is, how important internationalism is and how important solidarity is. That's what the Eureka Rebellion is about. And it continues to reverberate today, 163 years later. It is contested history. And it is contested history because people would like to bury the Eureka Rebellion. That's why the Eureka flag is not an official Australian flag. That's why in 2004, on the 150th anniversary of the rebellion, the Eureka flag was not flown on the main flagpole in Parliament House. And that's why in a city that profits from the Eureka symbols, in a city that clothes itself in the Eureka symbols to promote its institutions, that the Eureka flag has never never been flown on the main flagpole on the Ballarat City Hall, never in the 163-year history. It wasn't flown again this year. And there is a reason. Because if you have an example of how radical change can occur, if you have an example of an event which continued to promote change over generations, which was used as a symbol of what was possible through the use of direct action, then 
you are credible, you mount a credible challenge to authority today. Because people say, what are we going to replace it with? And it's simple. By a federation of community and workplace councils, which are based on direct democratic principles where wealth is held in common. That's what we're going to replace it with. A society where every individual has the maximum opportunities to develop themselves to their full capacity. Obviously, we all have different levels of experience and capacity. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't have the same rights. And the problem is doubly acute in Australia because Australia is one of the few places in the world that does not have a Bill of Rights. It doesn't have a Bill of Rights. It doesn't have a constitution which allows the people to initiate legislation through citizens-initiated referendums. It doesn't have that power. There's no protection for our rights in the Australian Constitution, which is essentially a trade document which regulates the relationship between the central government and the states. It's not a document about freedom or democracy or rights. It's essentially, as I said, a document that regulates the relationship between the central authorities and local governments. Sorry, and state governments. So Eureka is alive. I encourage you to attend the Eureka Rebellion celebrations in Ballarat in 2018 to celebrate the 164th anniversary of the Eureka Rebellion, to celebrate the central elements of the Eureka Rebellion, direct action, direct democracy, internationalism and solidarity. Principles which are as important today as they were 163 years ago. Principles which underline the struggles that we take place. Because as a result of the Eureka Rebellion, an alternative parliament was set up across the road in the eastern markets from Parliament House. And that parliament continued to function for over 10 years. People with more radical ideas were elected to parliament for decades in the Victorian Parliament. And many of the changes which occurred in Victoria, which were groundbreaking on a worldwide basis, occurred directly as a result of the Eureka Rebellion, as a result of the fact that people understood that ultimate political authority rests in the hands of the people. It doesn't rest in the hands of the state. It doesn't rest in the hands of the bureaucracy. It doesn't rest in the hands of the corporate sector. It doesn't rest in the hands, you know, of people who have nothing to do with it. It rests in our hands. So change is possible. Radical change is possible. If there is one lesson we can learn from the Eureka Rebellion is that radical change is possible. Very possible. And it just needs the right spark to get that radical change moving. And that spark is dependent on people's satisfaction with their participation in the laws, in fashioning the laws that regulate their lives. And if you think electing a representative to make decisions for you for the next three to four years is a central tenet of democracy, think again, because the central tenet of democracy is allowing 
the people to determine how they live, to determine the laws we live under, to determine the relationships we have between organisations, institutions in our society. Because that's what it's about. The Eureka Rebellion was about putting power back in the hands of the people. It was about ensuring that ultimate political authority rests in the hands of the people. Not the bureaucracy, not the state, not the corporate sector, not the ruling traditional ruling class, but in the hands of the people. The Eureka Rebellion was about demanding that we have a right to be involved in the decision-making processes in our society. Unfortunately, in 2017, many people have forgotten the radical lesson of the Eureka Rebellion. They've forgotten the clarion call in the Eureka oath, we swear by the Southern Cross to stand truly by each other and fight to defend our rights and liberties. And I don't blame them for it, forgetting. Because there's been no attempts in the history of this country, no attempts in the history of this country, to give the Eureka Rebellion the prominence it deserves in the historical record. The only prominence the Eureka Rebellion has given is the fact that it was an armed uprising. People don't talk about the central elements of that rebellion, direct democracy, direct action. Think about it. Solidarity, internationalism. And in an era when symbols are usurped for different reasons, it's a tragedy to see so many Australians thinking The Eureka flag is somehow synonymous with racism in this country. It's not synonymous with racism. It's our flag. It's an inclusive flag. It's a flag which represents the will of the people. It's a flag which represents the way forward. And next year on the 3rd of December, we'll have the same activities as we had this year. But different speakers, same location for the dinner, so if you're interested, now's the time to ring up and uh, book into the motel. I'll give you a number just in case uh, you want to speak to me about this. I won't be back to you for a while till after the till the uh, second Wednesday in January because next week's program will also be pre-recorded. And next week's program will be about Tanaminawe Mobohina, who we commemorate on the 20th of January here in Melbourne every year. So listen in next week for the special program on Tanaminawe and Mobohina. Now remember, if you want to write to me, you can write to me at Post Office Box 20, Parkville 3052. Post Office Box 20, Parkville 3052. You can email me at anarchistage at yahoo.com. Evil minds that plot destruction. Sorcerer of death's construction. An analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Anarchist World This Week, Australia's Sacred Cow Slaughterhouse. 10am every Wednesday. Listen to the Anarchist World This Week for an up-to-date analysis of local, national and international events. Poisoning their brainwashed minds. Oh, Lord, yeah.